0: Take a network break. We've got stories today on corporate spyware, a curious acquisition, AWS enabling, IPv6 and VPCs, and more IT news. We're sponsored today by Nokia and its SR Linux Network OS. SR Linux was built with NetOps in mind to let you develop your own apps to help automate network design, provisioning, and deployment. You can find out more at Nokia.ly/slash SR Linux. That's nokia.ly slash srlinux. And stick around after the news for a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation about BGP EVPN with Pluribus Networks. The BGP EVPN deployment can be a heavy lift, but Pluribus is here to talk about how it can simplify and automate the process. And last but not least, if you like Network Break, we've got a bunch of other podcasts in the family, including Day 2 Cloud, Heavy Networking, IPv6 Buzz, and Full Stack Journey. It's nerdy tech analysis and conversation about infrastructure, cloud, professional development, and more. It's all at packetpushers.net. All right, let's get to the news. NSO Group, they're an Israeli company that sells surveillance software or spyware to national and local government and law enforcement agencies is running into problems, including US government sanctions and a lawsuit from Apple. Uh, The spyware, by the way, is used to break into Target's mobile devices to eavesdrop and get access to messages, contacts, and photos.
1: Yeah. So NSO Group has been in the news for quite a few years now. They are using the most egregious of hacking tools, to hack into people's phones, smartphones. They're very focused on smartphones so far. Mm -hmm. They've been selling services to governments, not corporates, but their main core business has been selling them to governments around the world. They've been fairly indiscriminate about who they've been selling them to. I guess I want to say... They've been saying, you know, business is business. We'll sell to anybody who wants to pay for our services, whether it's Oman or the Saudi government, whether it's Burma, whether it's whatever. It's all just right. business, right? And we're not here to make judgments about, you know, who should be using our products and that sort of stuff. That's one way to look at it. But I think what's happening here is that NSO is now discovering that doesn't necessarily wash. Uh, and what's happened in this case is the U.S. government has decided that NSO Group is now actively attacking the U.S. government. Its tools are being used to attack U.S. government uh, officials. They are not willing to, to put up with that anymore and they have actually placed them on a trade blacklist. So this is now defined as a national security issue. No U.S. company, no U.S. state governments, no U.S. federal governments, no one is allowed to do business with NSO Group. It is now fully on a sanctioned list, which is rather extreme, don't you think?
0: Well, I think it's appropriate given that NSO software has been used to target uh, journalists, politicians, dissidents. Uh, Mm -hmm. It is used by repressive regimes. You know, NSO group will say, well, you know, we don't collect any of this data ourselves and we don't have any insight into what our customers do with the software. So we're fine. We're clean. But um when you start targeting government agencies with this kind of uh tool and technology there's going to be backlash and and now it's starting
1: it's it's super interesting because this is boards right along the edge of the argument that guns don't kill people people kill people and Mm -hmm. if you give people access to malware tools like this that are you know well managed well operated that people are willing to pay large sums of money they have a bunch of back end services that are hosted on cloud platforms and they have been implicated in a number of ra- of governments around the world who have then used these tools to conduct operations which have been very high profile and very would not be regarded as moral or right by the majority of people around the world this is an israeli company so it comes and israel is a strong ally of the us Geopolitically, there's a whole bunch going on here. But what happened is the U.S. government has basically gone in the, fly, in the face of existing thing and just said, "No, we don't care that it's an Israeli company. We are going to blacklist it immediately, regardless of the diplomatic consequences." Here, the NSO group had gone to the Israeli government and asked them to go and lobby the U.S. government to get yep. this rolled back and say, "Why are you doing this to us? You know, it's just business. It's not you know." And so, there's a really interesting angle here that. Geopolitically, the U.S. government has said, no, you're not allowed to use these tools on U.S. citizens. You've repeatedly failed to take steps that we're happy about. So we're going to blacklist you completely from any U.S. company globally
0: it's a a big step it's definitely hurts nso group because for instance that means they can't get access to uh windows software which they can test against or apple software which they can test against presumably i mean at least they can't get it through normal channels i'm sure there are back doors they could use but Mm. their u.s companies are now not allowed to sell to them so that hurts their development efforts not allowed Um, to sell to them and not allowed to buy from them And buy from them, right, which is also important.
1: Yeah, because a lot of U.S. law enforcement was buying NSO Group to use for criminal surveillance. Apple has now um, taken it a step further and decided to protect its reputation, to take its own steps. Now, Apple's been pretty upfront about keeping its brand uh, safe and protected and being willing. But it's very unusual for Apple to go public here, and they're now actually lodging a, a substantial lawsuit for damages and making claims that it has material financial impact to apple um and they are now taking nso group to court and suing them
0: yeah they want a permanent injunction uh to ban the nso group from using any apple software service or devices according to the press release Uh, they say they take attacks against their users very seriously and so they want nso to stop and stop getting access to their software
1: now it should be noted that whatsapp is also suing the NSO group for the same thing because they've been intercepting and damaging WhatsApp's brand in the same way. So it's interesting that the WhatsApp version basically got no airtime, but the Apple one caught the press's attention for sure.
0: Of course, (laughs) That's that's Apple's brand power, yeah.
1: So Apple has been doing a couple of different things. Apple is saying, we have direct evidence that NSO spyware Pegasus is causing problems. And so they're definitely going up. There's no weaseling here. There is no indirection. And Apple is also taking what I think to be the very unusual step of actually notifying victims that your phone has been hacked by NSO tools and sending out notifications globally, not just in the US, but globally saying, we've detected NSO Pegasus spyware on your phone. We wanted to let you know. We don't know who's installed it or whatever, but that's the thing. Those are really unusual actions.
0: They are. And I, I wonder if part of that is publicity, but also if there's opportunities for individuals then to also open up lawsuits, uh, which could cause more problems mm-hmm. for NSO as as part of Apple's strategy.
1: There's two, there's two more angles I want to raise. One is NSO is actually funded by US companies, by US investors. Huge investments. This company's got over 500 million of debt sitting on its books. And it may actually now not be able to sustain business because they've now got no way to finance that debt. Now they're cut off from the banks. And the banks are now saying that now that you're blacklisted, you're required to pay back the money you owe us. And investors are not going to invest anymore. And they'll also be looking to get their money back. And this has an interesting impact because if you were saying, well, I'm just going to invest in companies because they make me money and it's not my problem. this like There's a whole chilling effect here. Companies have been funding spyware for 20 years or more. And now what we've suddenly seen is that the US government among other governments, there are other governments as well, but this is, this one's is the one that's on the table today. He's actually saying is that we do not support this sort of spyware or this out of control activity, I think would be the best way to describe it. If you are somebody who's been investing in this type of business, you would now be going like, what do I do?
0: I, I think it's tricky because there's always going to be an appetite for this kind of technology. Um, and so they will find funding somewhere. There are ways to disguise how you're investing in these kind of companies. Mm-hmm. NSO so was, you know, just doing it right out in front. And so maybe that gave investors some confidence that everything was on the up and up now that they're on this entities list. Yeah. That, that does. The, the normal channels for finance are starting to close, but I don't think this well, is going to have a necessarily yeah. a chilling effect on, on the industry as a whole.
1: Yeah. Well, you're talking about a company that's, ha- you know, got 500 million in debt. If you can't get that from mainstream sources, you're going to struggle to get cash.
0: The fact that you're on an NL list now makes it hard to get cash. I guess I'm saying that mm-hmm. um this this technology, this know-how is out there and folks will find ways outside of normal channels to get it funded and up and running and usable.
1: Yeah, but they're not going to be able to draw down the same sort of funding that had before.
0: They, right, they couldn't just go to a private equity firm or a bank and say, "Hey, we want a loan here, yeah. you know, here's our books, here's our." They're do going business, to
1: be right? forced to raise capital in countries that you know, take risks around U.S. jurisdiction. The fewer regulations, yes, yes, uh-huh. right. And so, the ability to tap into substantial amount of capital funding is going to be a problem. Uh-huh. Now, there so are there are plenty that. of other firms doing spyware sales like this around the world. We saw the previous one, uh, where a bunch of U.S. citizens went to Oman and UAE and set up a, an operation there, who were and those people were then subsequently sanctioned by the U.S. government as people right. not. And then the organisation was later sanctioned. So this is still in the same vein. This is consistent policy. You know, I do think that any companies that are like this before, who had dreamed of becoming billion-dollar unicorns, might suddenly realise that they have a responsibility society to the point whereas if they don't comply with certain reasonable moral, you can't just stand there and say, oh, it's just business. Do you know what I mean?
0: I think companies like this are going to have to, instead of seeking normal public channels, going to have to look for backdoors, look for less mm. savory organizations from which to raise the money. I don't think it's going to stop the business. They're just going to have to yeah. seek uh, other sources. Uh, they can't But it's just not going be to be a billion-dollar business. It. It's not the lucrative. It's right. Yes. right. Uh, yeah, the venture community, in, particularly in Silicon Valley, may be hesitant about getting behind stuff like this. Although I think about companies like Palantir here in the U.S., which does a lot of uh, uh, corporate and government surveillance work, what they're thinking about this now.
1: What you'll see is that all of the funds from the US investors will be turned off to this spyware because they'll be concerned that the government might come after them. Not a good thing. The secondary impacts here are if you're somebody who's a security researcher and you're researching these vulnerabilities where does that leave you so if you're somebody who's a professional person spend your time researching security vulnerabilities and reporting them for bug bounties now NSA was buying those vulnerabilities turning it retooling them into weaponry so it's interesting to think that mm, you know could Apple say this is a chance to stop security researchers from doing research on their products if you're a security researcher and you find a bug you know do you start looking at Apple products does it make them less secure is the is the issue
0: That's an interesting point. If folks like Apple decided to take that tack, I think it would be a mistake. When you're doing security research through accepted channels, through approved bug bounty programs, through responsible disclosure, that's a benefit to everyone. Mm. Uh, We know companies don't necessarily like it because they don't like publicity about security vulnerabilities in their products, but to go after legitimate security researchers using this as kind of a cudgel, uh, you know, saying that they're Mm. enabling spyware and surveillance, I think would be a mistake over the long term even if they get you know what they think is some marketing benefit or reputational benefit in the short run
1: now the other thing to consider here is that if you're thinking about this and saying but this is an enterprise i.t i would point out that this is absolutely the same thing you could go and yes. there are <laughs> nso group type companies and potentially even nso group that was selling to companies that wanted to conduct industrial espionage go out there and put this on people's phones And if they haven't yet, it's only because they've only been marketing it to governments and it was only a matter of time until they repackaged it and started selling it to other organizations to use for industrial espionage. So everything that we've said here today, to my mind, fits directly into enterprise IT. You don't have the tools to defend your phones, your smartphones, your mobile devices, your laptops against these types of attacks. Some of the articles that I've read have indicated that Israel has been using this to conduct politics. So they've been willing to sell NSO group tools to countries like Egypt on the back of good diplomatic relations. So there is a really complicated situation here. To my mind, the fact that it's been done at a government, is now locked out at a government level, may lead these organisations to turn around and turn it into industrial tools, industrial espionage, so that they can snoop on competitors and companies and things like that and that is a that is a substantial market in its own right but again a black market sits underneath the horizon it's not easy like i think the nso group's crime here if you like was to just do it so publicly and to basically thumb their noses at the U.S. government, all of the secret services around the world. He sort of said to them, look, you need to calm down. You're doing it wrong. You're not, you know, they must have literally gone like, we don't care. We just sell the malware. What people use it for is...
0: Governments are realizing that as much as they might want these tools, they can also be turned against them. So, Greg, you had a link from a story in Technology Review about the French government, which was reportedly in dealings with NSO Group to license uh, the Pegasus spyware. And then they realized that their own uh, president, Emmanuel Macron, might be a victim of that very same spyware, which kiboshed the deal. These tools that you want to use against your competitors, uh, other nations can also be used against you, which I think probably also helped prompt the U.S. to, to make its move. At some stage, you have to say, this is not
1: right. The business will probably continue. It'll happen at a smaller scale and it will be much more, you know, furtive and in the back. And I think that's what, and that was the problem here is that NSO was rapidly moving to using these tools in public and trying to make them normal at some point the system has decided that this is not an acceptable behavior and now they're being punished quite heavily but they are now at risk of defaulting on a 500 million dollar loan after the blacklisting because we don't often see technology stories breaking into the mainstream but in the last two or three years especially during lockdown technology IT, computers, smartphones, has been much more upfront about getting involved in people's lives. And this, to me, feels like a reaction to that more generally. And there's definitely an enterprise IT, definitely a security, network security angle here that I think is interesting to think about.
0: You know, you work for a Fortune 500 company or whatever, Fortune 100, you know, you want to double check the security on those executive smart devices. Those are prime targets.
1: It's funny how when WhatsApp sued NSO, it sort of got press but it didn't really create a reaction. When Apple sues them straight after the US government blacklists NSO group it just gets bonkers press. If Apple is now going to take proactive activities so when it identifies malware from these companies it's going to send notifications instead of just doing nothing. That changes the game substantially. It's a shame that Apple couldn't secure. Like Apple doesn't have a good reputation with security researchers accepting bugs paying bug Mm -hmm. bounties to justify the Mm -hmm. research and then reacting effectively. Like the Apple habit of not saying anything in public is actually not doing them a a service here. It's very hard for many people in the security research community to trust Apple here. And a lot of the tweets and stuff from them are going like, yeah, yeah, whatever, Apple. We still don't like you. We still don't trust you.
0: That's interesting because Apple is very much staking part of its value proposition around security. It's been very clear about that is what Mm -hmm. differentiates it from competing smartphones. Uh, And I, I like the fact that they're selling security as a differentiator because it means they need to take it seriously. But if they do have a bad reputation with the broader legitimate security security researcher community that's something yeah. they need to address well, apple's they got a control problem this. there it doesn't like right to be. they do they really yeah. do yeah they really yeah.
1: really do and you know even when they have bug bounty programs they have very strict rules on what you're allowed to do. you're yeah. allowed to do yeah. this but you're not allowed to do that so there is reason to question apple's security story if you are well informed and understand the game here
0: as a software developer ignorance is not a viable security strategy it might be no. a viable marketing one but not no. a good security strategy. all right let's uh move on we've got plenty of links in the show notes if you want to read more but we'll Tackle our next story. That's Ericsson. They are spending 6.2 billion in cash to buy Vonage, which you may remember as being a voice uh, over IP company. Uh, they used to compete against traditional telephone companies. Now apparently, they are in the cloud communications business. That means they've shifted to targeting business customers for unified communications, contact center services, and APIs. Well, it still does have a consumer business, and I guess Ericsson thought, yeah, okay, we can do something with Vonage.
1: Vonage has been presenting itself as a competitor to things like Zoom and Webex and Microsoft Teams. Um, Mm -hmm. And it provides the APIs in the back end that enables a lot of that. So a lot of contact centers can do chat with customers. It's as much of that whole remote working capability as it is anything else. Now, can Vonage compete with Zoom, Webex and Teams and so forth and Slack? Arguably, (laughs) you know, hard to believe. So does Ericsson want to become a competitor to Teams and Zoom? I could see like Vonage is already substantially cloud-based and it just presents a bunch of APIs and a bunch of tools so that you can do contact centers and so forth. And what Ericsson is, might be saying is, Instead of using voice over 5G new radio or 4G LTE and the voice technologies and inside like that, why don't you just take this tooling and use this for your telco voice solution? And at the same time, you can take this and sell it to your enterprise customers. If you buy a 5G solution from Ericsson, Mr. Telco, now you actually get an IP telephony Collaboration, sales tool, contact centers that you can now go and sell to your customers.
0: Yeah, my take was that Vonage was providing, you know, sort of back end services. It was kind of the hidden partner for unified communications companies, contact center services, um, sort of providing the technology for it as opposed to selling those services themselves. What I find hard is why Ericsson decided this was a company to buy and why they spent so much on them. I understand that Ericsson now has a, a, a broader strategy to diversify its business. So to get into not just selling equipment, but also selling services over the top of the equipment, which I guess makes sense in that if you're not doing a great job selling that equipment, at least you're still getting some revenue from selling services over the top. Mm-hmm. Uh, but $6.2 for Vonage seems like they've paid way too much
1: that does feel like it for what's fundamentally an IP telephony platform, even with contact centers or whatever. I guess the challenge here is that 5G isn't taking off the way that they expect it. My thesis has been that 5G is not a market winner. You know, there's no reason to believe that telcos are going to rush out to deploy 5G and spend billions and billions. And in fact, the longer they can delay those purchases, the better off they are, especially during the pandemic. Now, there is operational benefits from getting 5G, But if you go down the path of buying say nokia or ericsson or samsung 5g you're still proprietary you're still locked in you're still stacked and there Mm -hmm. is some Mm -hmm. hope that open ran you know the o ran around the 5g stack and what intel's doing with its ran is to open that up unbundle and if i'm a telco i would be thinking everything i do to wait if i can manage it is actually better for my business i might get better choices down the stack and so Ericsson now have may, you know, and the other telco companies may be facing a revenue hole in the years ahead. Originally, they would planned that if they did all of this, they would have this much revenue. And now they may be facing revenue holes. And now they're making acquisitions like this to bump up their numbers in the years ahead.
0: Yeah, I understand Ericsson wanting to diversify because it, it seems like 5G equipment sales haven't been the boon that they had anticipated it would be. And so they want to look into other business opportunities. Um, as I mentioned, instead of just selling equipment, also sell services that run over the top of 5G. But again, 6.2 billion for Vonage. Uh, I I've, I mean, great for Vonage, a wonderful exit for them. I'm sure the board of directors and all shareholders <laughs> are very happy about that. I Feel like Ericsson maybe got a little bit taken by this deal because that they've really got to execute well to drive value out of this purchase. So just to update you on how Vonage has been doing in its most recent financial statement, the company had quarterly revenues of $358 million and a net loss of $2 million. Uh, and its enterprise unit accounts for about 80% of its revenue, so it still does have a consumer voice business, but that is a small and uh, it looks like shrinking part of the business, it's primarily an enterprise company now. All right, moving on, AWS has announced the ability to deploy IPv6-only subnets within dual-stack v4 and v6 VCPs. Customers can launch EC2 instances in a v6 subnet and get a slash 64 CIDR block for that subnet, which AWS says offers uh, quintillions of IPs for applications. Uh, the catch in this feature is that it's limited to AWS's Nitro platform. Nitro is a combination of a custom network card and Amazon hypervisor. Uh, But if you're into Nitro and need a lot of IPs, that's now an option. I mean,
1: having IPv6 internally removes the need for dual stack inside your infrastructure and the cost of NAT gateways is phenomenal. For every packet that you send through, you get charged bandwidth costs, gateway costs, firewall costs, and NAT gateway costs. So uh, having IPv6 natively inside means that you can give it publicly routed addresses for those internal hosts. You can add IPv4 to IPv6 at the edge of the network. And uh, in theory, IPv6 is where you want to be. So having a a unique IP address for every container that you instantiate, for every VM that you instantiate, and never having to reuse those addresses makes it a lot simpler to administrate. So if you're using software software provisioning, you can pull an IP address, allocate it as a unique ID, and never have to use it again. However, you also have to rewrite all of your software provisioning to use IPv6 and you have to live with IPv6, which is not an insignificant feat.
0: Right. I think one of the reasons we're seeing the very, very, very slow uptake of IPv6 is that additional complexity that folks feel a lot of software having to be rewritten for the new addresses, that kind of thing. I'm I'm glad to see AWS doing this because putting their support behind it introduces IPv6 to a whole bunch of people. And if you are Mm. sort of at the cutting edge with serverless or container-based applications, Uh, and IPv6 makes sense to you, that's great. Uh, So, you know, kudos to AWS for making it happen. Uh, And maybe this will help sort of bring IPv6 finally into the mainstream.
1: If I was deploying a new app, I would probably seriously consider doing IPv6 native primary and then have IPv4 gateways in the hope that you might avoid the costs of IPv4. Because obviously IPv4 addresses cost money. They're very expensive. You don't get to keep them for long. They keep changing all the time. Whereas if you give a container a physical addre- a unique IPv6 address, you never need to change it, right? You don't have a NAT, you don't, if you have to pull a container down and then put it back again, you'd get the same address back and things like that. So mm-hmm. there's a whole bunch more choices here and it's always made sense to have an IPv6 data center, except for the fact that a lot of things just didn't support IPv6 very well. So, and we're already seeing that here, that still remains a problem here because they're only deploying it on these things in these places where the infrastructure has been validated. So kind of sad, you know, 30 years into IPv6 and we're still sort of partial support.
0: Baby steps, more baby, baby
1: steps. steps. But if you want yes. to know more, you should go and listen to IPv6 Buzz, which is a podcast in Packet Pushes. The three hosts of that network spend their entire life working on IPv6 and advising companies, and they talk about various IPv6 lessons. It's a great place to get yourself stuff.
0: Quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Nokia. They want you to know that operating your network isn't enough. You've got to develop for it. Traditionally, NetOps teams have managed data center switches with the CLI or vendor apps or third party tools and long on the tooth protocols such as SNMP. Nokia builds switches with NetOps in mind. Its SR Linux network OS in conjunction with Nokia's NetOps development kit it lets you create your own apps so you can automate network design, provisioning, and deployment. You can also use Nokia's fabric services system software to automate day zero, day one, and day two and beyond of your data center fabric lifecycle. You can find out how SR Linux, the NetOps Development Kit, and the fabric services system can help simplify operations in your data center. Just go to nokia.ly srlinux. That's nokia.ly slash srlinux. And we thank Nokia for being a sponsor. Right, a couple more stories to go. One, Samsung Electronics has announced it's going to build a new semiconductor fabrication plant in the U.S. state of Texas. Groundbreaking on the $17 billion facility is expected to begin in 2022, with operations commencing in 2024. Because Samsung, of course, usually
1: makes its chips in South Korea, and it's such a huge manufacturer of chips today, including DRAM especially so just bulk (laughs) bulk manufacturer of everyday chips in a way and I think this is what's being happening here I'm not a silicon expert and you know but we can send you to some links and stuff this has been on the table for a while I think there's been articles swirling around saying this is coming or the US government has been very big on the strategic need and the political need to get silicon fab in their own countries and you're seeing Europe and Great Britain and a lot of other countries say you know we need to stop seeing the manufacturing go to Taiwan and south korea and china and japan we need to start getting it back into the northern hemisphere i imagine there's been a lot of pressure applied to get this done although this must have been in the pipe i don't think this could have happened in the last six to twelve months to you
0: No, based on some stories from the Austin uh, Statesman, that's a newspaper in Austin, Texas, which is near where this plant is going to be made. They've been tracking it for quite a while. There's been a lot of discussions with state officials, county officials, local officials. uh, And of course, there are tax incentives and sweeteners uh, for Samsung in this deal, including uh, an estimated nearly a billion dollars in tax incentives uh, over (laughs) 10 years or so, plus $27 million directly from the state of Texas to Samsung to come and build this plant.
1: It's probably worth noting that Texas already has a number of silicon fabs in there, a number of Factories making silicon chips and has a long history of semiconductor manufacturing going right the way back to the 1960s. Obviously, companies like Texas Instruments, for example, and then subsequently that went offshore. You could talk for hours about how the silicon industry went offshore, um, but in this case, you know, Texas still retains some design and manufacturing, and that's the unique part here. Is that Texas has a bunch of uh, human resources or people who have skills in this area. They're still Questions about power, that we saw, every article I mentioned talks about uh, the Texas power grid and how it's got this unique setup where it doesn't actually connect to any other states in the U.S. And you've got to ask if these fabs, which use huge amounts of energy, what they're going uh-huh. to do in the event that the power grid inside of Texas fails and doesn't have any dependencies on the outside. So presumably they're doing something to generate their own power or to supplement the power. Who knows? We'll have to wait and see.
0: Yeah, we'll have to wait and see uh, we should note that samsung already has an existing semiconductor plant uh, near austin texas which is about 25 kilometers from the new plant so uh, they do already have a presence there and they're just expanding now. All right, our last story for the day. Palo Alto Networks reported its earnings for Q1 2022 recently. The company had revenues of $1.2 billion, up 32% year over year, but posted a net loss of $103.6 million, which is more than it lost last uh, this time last year, but less than it lost last quarter. So I guess that's progress. <laughs> uh, the time on a tradition of losing
1: money to make money. Uh, Not exactly time on it, but, you know, technology is is what it is. It's a classic
0: Silicon Valley technique.
1: It is. uh, There's not really much to say here. We've talked a lot about security companies delivering, you know, astonishing results, showing growth in the face of everything. In particular, when I went over the analyst call they talked about winning deals because they've got a broad network security platform. So what people are doing is turning away from other security companies running niche products in verticals and buying a portfolio from Palo Alto, which is not surprising. Uh, Enterprise IT doesn't like buying best of breed. They like to buy one supplier does it all and doesn't really matter if it's mediocre. I'm not saying that Palo Alto's got any mediocre products. I'm just saying that, you know, historically companies... Enterprises are saying it's much easier for me just to buy it from a single supplier. I don't care right. if the product's not so good. I'll buy it from a single supplier. Uh, what is interesting here is even though they are making losses, um, they're also saying that the supply chain is not having any particular problems. Based on our strong performance in Q1 and visibility into our hardware pipeline in the second quarter, we're going to be raising our hardware forecast for the year in subsequent quarters so they're actually predicting to sell more hardware in the months to come not less because they've got supply problems they have increased their pricing like most other technology vendors claiming that it's to do with supply chain um, which you know you can believe it or not as you do when asked about the supply chain they said basically we don't have too many problems with the supply chain so far we seem to be okay but what they also said was customers are not necessarily accelerating the transition to the cloud they're seeing more customers do more with their existing infrastructure and they're bringing their orders for on-premise forward I think let me quote I think there may be a marginal impact of people are running into hardware issues but it's not as widespread and broad based as it's not enough to call it a trend but I'm sure that the margin that affects us is there so what he's saying is some people are moving to the cloud but by and large they're doubling down on their existing on-premise infrastructure and that's something that I've said a lot here is that yes there's business going into the cloud but most enterprises are staying on-prem and doing work on-prem and do- and spending more money in their on-premises infrastructure than they are in the cloud by orders of magnitude. That's a reality that I'm seeing.
0: It's really interesting given that how much effort the security industry is putting into SASE or cloud-delivered security services where you don't necessarily need that appliance uh, at a branch or even your uh, headquarters anymore. Uh, You know, this big honking heavy expensive appliance, because you can put it all in the cloud. So I, I suppose maybe they're just anticipating that shift someday, but in the meantime, are still happy to sell you as many appliances as you want.
1: At this particular point in time, people are in the pandemic, it's very difficult for them to move to the cloud right now is an angle,
0: you know, having to go through all that change
1: when you're not. And when there's so much other disruption going around, it just makes more sense to double down on what you've got. And I think the security risk that you understand, which is, you know, if I put, if I move to Prisma, you know, like their cloud-based scanning service, but to do that, you still need the uh, Palos firewalls and their hardware, their SD-WAN and all that sort of stuff. I I don't think cloud companies are rushing into the cloud because I think it's just too hard in the current environment. makes more sense to overhaul and update what you've got and then keep working on the cloud piece by piece. You know, it's there. You're going to go there. Yes, okay, you'll do more. But right now, maybe it's not the right time for most companies.
0: Yeah, I can see that. I mean, everybody talks about the cloud, but we know that adoption doesn't necessarily track with talk. Um, mm. I, I do think, you know, hardware companies always have to walk this line, uh, be, being too dependent on those hardware sales that eventually over time begin to evaporate uh, and turn into software or cloud sales. So mm. I, I, I guess I feel like Palo Alto very much still heavily into the appliance business, but recognizing that somewhere down the line, that mix could change, and so yeah. Well, I
1: things it. like prisma where you do the cloud scanning that's not replacing stuff on prem that's additional to
0: that could be too yeah yeah
1: so there's that's a lot nice, of stuff yeah. that's being done in the cloud that is n- not something that was in-house you know if you had an ids or an ips before in-house most people didn't even have them turned on or they weren't actively intercepting so that is net new that's so you know that does that change the numbers I, I don't know maybe
0: I guess I'm thinking of all the conversations we we had with customers using SD-WAN who are buying an SD-WAN appliance but then ditching the extra firewall or router or IPS that they had at their branches and so eventually that's going to catch up to Palo Alto even if they're selling you that SD-WAN appliance they might be losing that firewall sale but in the meantime it seems to be okay their revenue keeps growing even though they haven't made a profit yet
1: Here's an astonishing number for you. Palo Alto has the same market capitalization as VMware. They're both worth about $51 billion market capitalization huh. today. When I saw that, I was like, really?
0: <laughs> I mean, I think part of that is the fact that VMware has been so influential. Uh, you know, it sort of punches above its weight in terms of size and market cap versus mm-hmm. its influence on the industry. Yeah, so
1: It's where it like- sits in the stack. Yes. But- yeah.
0: Yeah, well, in this this discussion about you know not making a profit yet, if you look at how they break out their operating expenses, uh, they spent more than half a billion dollars on sales and marketing just in one quarter, uh, and those operating expenses keep going up every year. That's yeah. a phenomenal amount of money on sales and marketing.
1: Yes, they really do lean in, and that's what VMware used to do, and then they cut it back to make profit. So maybe that's the maybe that's the story. I guess we'll just have to keep looking and see how that goes.
0: We will. We will. We'll be back next quarter for Palo. All right, that wraps up the news portion. Thanks for listening and please stay tuned for our sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Pluribus Networks. We're going to be talking about automating BGP EVPN deployments. That's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we're talking about BGP EVPN with sponsor Pluribus Networks. A BGP EVPN deployment can be a heavy lift, but Pluribus is here to talk about how it can simplify and automate this process. Our guest is Alessandro Barbieri. He is VP of product management at Pluribus Alessandro, welcome to the podcast, and let's start just to remind listeners, can you give us a brief overview of Pluribus and and how you build an SDN fabric?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, uh, Drew and Greg. Uh, So first of all, um, just uh, Pluribus is a company which has been in business for approximately 10 years. So anything I'm going to talk about is actually widely deployed in many customer segments. So we have a unique technology in the SDN space in the sense that it's a distributed SDN control plane. It doesn't rely on any centralized server to manage and host the controller of the SDN fabric. So it's truly fully distributed. It adapts basically to any topology. And it's easy, very easy and simple to deploy across multiple sites as well. This fabric does uh, give you uh, effectively three uh, advantages as it's uh, deployed. Number one, you can manage uh, a wide fleet of devices. Uh, we have actual deployment that go into the over 100 uh, number of switches uh, range. Uh, And you can manage those as effectively a single logical distributed switch. So there's one entry point into the fabric, a full visibility into the entire fleet of switches, and you Mm. do it from every device. So number one is the manageability aspect, the unified management of the fabric. Number two, this fabric uh, operates uh, a distributed VXLAN control plane. Very similar to the BGP VPN functionalities in terms of uh, discovering and authenticating uh, the VTEPs. uh, and communicating uh, the different types of uh, routes across the fabric. We do it with our own native SDN control plane. That's the second functionality. And the result is that it totally automates uh, a VXLAN implementation without the need of being a protocol specialist or or a CCIE, if you will. And number three is, uh, we have, uh, it's very tied to number two, Uh, there's actually an element of uh, object, network object abstraction deployed on top of uh, these protocols effectively in the sense that um, with Turbos, you don't need to program uh, BGP or routing protocols. You do this in the underlay, but in the overlay, all you program are objects, similar to a public cloud. You log into AWS, you configure your VPC. Inside the VPC, you put your subnets, and then you put your gateways, your load balancer. you log balancer. You think in terms of services or objects, and we have a similar language uh, for the pluribus fabric. So you create a VLAN in one shot across 50 switches, uh, and then underneath uh, there's a, an overlay control plane and data plane, which is uh, uh, implementing this functionality at uh, at scale.
1: So one of the things that really stands out about the pluribus solution for me is this idea of... Uh- that you're controllerless. Most uh, vendors say you have to go and have our SDN controller and now you have to go out and buy a bunch of x86 servers of some site. Some vendors require hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars of worth, even millions of dollars worth that put their controller. And then when you go to a second site, you have to put down another controller and then you have to synchronize them and and then you've got an out of band. But the way that Pluribus does it is you actually have the controller functions in each and every switch. And it's very... Low processing load, so that it
2: can run in every single switch, and so it's this distributed SDN controller model, right? Yeah, precisely. And I think this is probably the why. I'm, at the beginning, I mentioned it's a very unique technology in the sense that the controlling function of SDN still exists, is just mm-hmm. deployed within uh, within the nodes that it's supposed to control, which which are the switches. And uh, this actually makes it a lot simpler and a lot less expensive to deploy, the, particularly in a multi-site or distributed uh, Yeah, I, I was going to say,
1: like if I've got a multi-site, like multiple data centers, but especially if I've got lots of small locations, I can still be running a VXLAN fabric underneath and each site has its own controllers. And if I've got two switches and I've got controller redundancy and switch redundancy, but I know need for third-party, you know, servers and code and all that stuff.
2: Exactly, exactly. And and that's frankly, uh, our dominant uh, use case and implementation is typically a multi-site implementation. This is actually where the distributed nature of this fabric, because you don't require all this extra overhead to manage uh, an SDN control plane, uh, actually the Mm -hmm. fabric shines. Um, So yeah, absolutely.
0: So let's bring the conversation back to the BGP EVPN, which is where we started. You know, if I'm trying to build out a bgp vpn fabric that means going into a bunch of switches and doing all the configuration you're saying pluribus takes a different approach
2: yes it does but at the same time is also complementary approach to evpn first of all we recognize that in a network we are never alone right Uh, there's always the need to interoperate any network of any size is a multi-vendor environment so Mm -hmm. most uh, more often than not, the need to interoperate with EVPN is essential. So our f- approach is actually twofold. Number one, we try to provide an infrastructure which is uh, 10, 100 times simpler uh, to uh, configure and maintain and operate than a BGP VPN infrastructure because we have the fabric and we have this layer of abstraction I mentioned before, right? You don't need to deal with the route distinguisher, route targets. You deal with a VRF or a subnet as a logical entity, like you would do in AWS. That's really the goal here. Okay. However, uh, as we need to uh, interoperate and talk to other cloud or extend this layer two, layer three overlay services to other areas of the network, we also have an EVPN implementation. So outside the fabric, uh, we definitely speak EVPN in such a way that uh, we can interoperate and extend these network overlays to third-party clouds. It can be an NSX cloud, an ASP, uh, a Cisco uh, cloud, a Cumulus cloud, any uh, cloud which speaks standard uh, EVPN. Uh, so that in-
1: means you can pair as a BGP router and share the appropriate EVPN information and so forth.
2: Precisely. And let's say you have a, uh, you have a, a pluribus cloud, perhaps a leaf and spine, or even a, a group of side distributed with 30, 40 switches. Uh, you need to elect or designate uh, only a pair of leaf uh, as a gateway, right? And the, the entire fabric from the outside looks like a single BGP neighbor, uh, if you will, right? Or a pair of BGP neighbors.
0: So so you're saying if in my data center or across multiple data centers, I'm running a pluribus fabric, but I've also got NSX, ACI, or some other BGP, EVPN fabric, I can still speak uh, among these different silos because of this gateway.
2: Exactly. Exactly. We have a gateway functionality, which is not that that different from an NSX, uh, the edge gateway. Yeah, that's right. I was going to say, that's,
1: that's a well-known, but that also means that you're using or implies that you're using your own um, the XLAN control plane inside your fabric. What's the advantages of the pluribus control plane then perhaps then over say a more traditional BGP VPN?
2: Yeah. So uh, from a functionality standpoint, uh, um, uh, we we support uh, uh, probably more services than on a standard uh, EVPN control plane. For example, we support, uh, uh, Pseudo wire uh, point-to-point and point-to-multi-point uh, services uh, with uh, transparency, uh, full transparency to uh, even control play packets. We use those uh, in metro application, but also in uh, packet brokers type of applications. Uh, we support uh, a bridge domain with advanced Q and Q implementation for metro right. internet. There's a variety of additional services we can deploy on top uh, um, on top of this fabric. Right. Uh, but the main advantage uh, boils down to simplicity, right? Because uh, like I mentioned before, programming an EVPN, uh, BGP, VPN distributed fabric, whether it's a leaf and spine or a multi-site, uh, requires the coordination of the configuration across uh, um, uh, tens of boxes with thousands of lines of code. In a pluribus environment, uh, effectively, you're... you're dealing with a single logical distributed switch. So you're dealing with one element. There's one yeah. SSH session and three commands to deploy a VRF or a subnet. That's a huge difference.
1: And that's really interesting because that's one of the key things is when you SSH into the fabric, you see the entire fabric as a single unit. You don't actually have to connect to each switch and you can actually run the SDN controller from a command line, if that's your particular thing that you need to do, or you can run it from a graphical console. It doesn't matter either which way, right? Yeah, I guess the other side here is that, what about if I actually want to run an actual BGP eVPN underlay? Does Pluribus handle that?
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. There's there's a way to operate a Pluribus switch in a, I call it a degenerate way where the fabric is not there anymore. You operate Mm. the switch as a single device. In that case, Uh, we behave like a regular EVPN speaker. Uh, The only difference or if you will, advantage is that we preserve the object abstraction even within the single switch. So, In the sense that you don't have to, again, program BGP, EVPN configuration lines, you still program mm. the pluribus objects even on a single node. You do VLAN create, VRF create, right. subnet create. So that right? becomes
1: more yes. of the traditional device by device, hop by hop type approach to networking. I call it a legacy mindset. Uh, it's it's a legacy mindset. Yes. Yeah. Each With device is a standalone structure. node, oh, yeah. programmed, configured, but they interoperate loosely, loosely integrated. Whereas the pluribus fabric idea is a much more of a tight integration between the separate elements.
2: Precisely. Precisely. Right.
1: But that does give me the ability to say, I want an end-to-end BGP eVPN standards based. Well, for some definition of standard, just let me ask a quick question here. There are some of the brand name vendors have interpreted the eVPN standard differently, notably Juniper and Cisco. And so that means that integrating those things together can be quite difficult because they each have a different way of looking at eVPN. Are you able to handle either or, or both?
2: Yeah, uh, yeah, we are. And actually we run uh, um, uh, our EVPN uh, implementation. Every release runs through a series of um, uh, compatibility uh, matrix with other vendors. Uh, Namely, we have uh, uh, Cumulus, uh, Juniper, and Cisco in our lab. And we're capable of adapting uh, to the different uh, uh, nuances of the protocol as implemented by those vendors.
1: Which is pretty interesting because that means you can interoperate with them And, you know, you could speak to Juniper and Cisco at the same time if you are unlucky enough to have that much diversity in your data center fabrics um, and potentially even bridge between them. But at the same time, the thing to remember here is that Pluribus works on uh, a range of of switch hardware. I'm not restricted to a certain brand name vendor here. I? I can use almost
2: anything I want. Yes, almost. Uh, clearly, there's a set of devices we're compatible with. We have qualified, but uh, in general, those are open networking devices. Uh, and uh, definitely Pluribus uh, has also done uh, uh, ad hoc work for specific customers, uh, which require yeah. specific type of switches. As long as it's only it supports uh, Broadcom uh, latest uh, silicon, yeah. I think per game.
1: game. You have a range of switches that you can supply directly, or if the customer wants to buy their own from some, from a third party, you've got an approved list. And one of the other things that I wanted to touch on here was also analytics and visibility. I think one of the biggest parts of SDN generally is this ability to have my monitoring and visibility tooling built in. And I noticed that your visibility tooling is actually to the point where you can actually start to do packet brokering. So maybe like A, do you do insights and visibility? Yes.
2: Yes, uh, yeah, we do. Um, So we have uh, visibility at the flow level. Mm-hmm. And uh, we do it uh, um, uh, with uh, software and a little bit of hardware assistance from specific uh, Broadcom chipset uh, uh, as well. Uh, for mm-hmm. example, uh, I just mentioned that uh, the latest generation of Broadcom has a, a hardware table called ExecMatch uh, where you can store uh, NetFlow-style information for, let's say, 128,000 flows. So there's a little bit of a system, but to deploy these flows, we use our software to record these flows in the table and then let the hardware counters go, we actually use our software. So it's a mixed approach between hardware and software. Um, it applies to TCP, UDP, and ICMP uh, type of uh, uh, type of flows. So this visibility is built into the switch. And frankly, I have not seen it done um, uh, so extensively by other vendors, unless, of course, they have a special uh, NetFlow hardware assistance. Um, yeah.
1: But that requires... You can emulate that in software to some extent, but having the hardware means you can ramp up the performance. I also think interesting that your fabric can be used as a packet broker. So if I need to be able to tap fabrics or tap uh, packet flows, I then divert them off to packet capture engines or for scanning or for logging that your fabric is able to do that. That's not something we normally see in other SDN fabric
2: solutions. Yeah, yeah. And uh, for Pluribus, actually, the interesting part is that the, the packet broker is actually a service of the fabric that can coexist uh, with the existing uh, or with the regular layer two, layer two overlay switching. We also deploy the packet broker as an overlay service. So again, it runs on top of this excellent control plane and mesh. Before and you can do the classic tap aggregation, uh, filtering, uh, and replication uh, pretty much anywhere across the fabric. There are no restrictions. It's extremely flexible. Uh, it's, it's actually an entire new um, mm. uh, set of capabilities we uh, released maybe six uh, nine months ago, uh, yeah. and uh, customers like it because uh, it's extremely low cost solution and it's a solution that can coexist uh, with a regular f- fabric.
1: There's always an interesting thing here with packet brokers or with this type of that type of network functionality is you can put it in as a separate network and prove it out. So, um, if you need a pat to, if you're today, you're using a network taps and you're using a custom hardware solution to do network tapping, and then to build a broker fabric, you can actually use pluribus. And then if you're happy with what you see from that, you can then migrate it actually into the data plane. Maybe you still maintain the uh, packet <laughs> capture fabric separately, but you know,
2: yeah, uh, that makes sense. You can start out of band uh, yep. and also this fabric can be fully distributed. So if you want to do tapping and monitoring and aggregation across multiple sites in a campus network or in any uh, distributed metro network with the pluribus fabric, you deploy these nodes at the periphery or the edge of the network and you can actually treat this as a gigantic distributed packet broker.
1: So one last question I want to ask is if I'm writing code on top, like I'm not a big fan of using Python and and various Python libraries and tools to write BGP VPN controllers. I figured that the 80-20 rule applies here. I should get 80% of my functionality from a tool like Pluribus, and then 20% of my functionality would be hand-coded by you know, somebody by me or my team to just bring it up to a level of application to what we exactly want. Do you even with this controllerless SDN, this idea of that every switch knows what all the switches are doing? Can I, I still got APIs? I can still do top Python and, and go and Rust on top of that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you, you do have access to a Linux uh, uh, operating system. You can use the classic uh, Linux uh, tools. And then we have uh, a native uh, REST API with full parity with the CLI. So typically, actually, we see the RESTful interface as the way to sort of program the infrastructure, orchestrate the fabric, but you still have your regular uh, Linux uh, programming tools and scripting tools available as well.
0: Well, we are running out of time. Alessandro, is there any final thoughts you want to leave us with about Pluribus and how you differentiate?
2: Yeah, so I think the the main point is is all about simplification, right? So uh, we are not trying to replace a standard protocol uh, or... Uh, Uh, traditional way of managing the infrastructure. We want to make it much, much simpler, right? So uh, at Pluribus, we give you instead of uh, an interface uh, to program uh, 50 devices with 50 SSH sessions, just to make an example, we give you one single interface to program a fleet of 50 devices. Instead of having you to learn uh, the protocol of the day, we give you a simple object as abstracted uh, unobstructed um, uh, environment uh, similar to public cloud you focus on uh, the objects and the services you want to program on the network not the protocols and the imperative uh, declaration required to do that
1: really yeah sometimes people time. go out and get libraries like ansible or you know and a whole bunch of products and even though they give you some primitives, you've still got to spend hundreds of hours making them work for you in your network. Uh, what I mean by that is uh, you know, Ansible framework doesn't configure your EVPN for you. You've still got to work out what you want. It doesn't create a model. It, you don't just say create me a VXLAN and then it's created on all
2: devices. You still have a whole bunch of other work to do. Uh, exactly. And uh, we also have uh, Ansible modules. Just our Ansible modules are enormously simpler Uh, to program and and, and operate and maintain. So it's all about simplification in the end. Well,
0: Mm -hmm. if you want to find out more from Pluribus, just head on over to pluribusnetworks.com. That's pluribusnetworks.com. There's also additional links in the show notes that accompany this podcast. Alessandro, thank you for joining us. And thanks to Pluribus for being a sponsor. And if you want even more technical conversations on networking, cloud, and IT, we've got hundreds of episodes along with our community blog. That's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. Find us on LinkedIn and rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.